Good morning. Glad you've chosen to be here. I'm going to encourage you to come back tonight for our uh, Sunday night serve. We're going to you know, bring some sandwiches and stuff to munch on, but it's really about sending out cards and sending out texts and then kind of seeing some slides of, uh, of what we did last month. And if you were at any of those places where we did services on a Sunday night, the last one in October, and you happen to have those pictures still, if you would text them to me today, we're going to text them on to Daniel Rickman, who's going to put together a slideshow tonight. Just very simple thing to kind of see where we all were and kind of the impressions that, was, that, were, that were made and the good that was done. And then we'll be looking at Pack-A-Sack a little bit. Pack-A-Sack is next Saturday. It's hard, it, this is the earliest Thanksgiving can be, and everything is coming quicker than it should. Something's going wrong with the calendar. But anyway, everything's coming flying. So Wednesday night, we're our devotional in the, uh, in the fellowship room in there, and then it's time to get to work, okay? It's time to kind of roll up some sleeves and pick up some cans and sack stuff and get ready. And then next Saturday, if you've never done Pack-A-Sack before, you're a sinner, and you need to repent and be here Saturday. Uh, not really. I'm just saying that this is a great opportunity, and, and we'll be talking some more about that as the sermon goes along. But we're just grateful that you're here, and, um, and, and uh, at least the ASU fans are happy, Arkansas not so much. But we had a, a, a fairly decent weekend of sports, and, and that you're ready to be here and some time together in worship. Let's, let's sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but Jesus <coughs> loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. By the way, I, I heard some bullying back there in this corner, right there about the Lord's Supper time. Some scary bullying. Did, did you parents fix that back there? Because, I mean, one kid let out a terrified me. He went, Rrr! who was that? Because it, okay, all right. I knew, I knew somebody knew who it was back there. I knew it. I get myself in trouble anytime I do something like that. Man. You're sitting at your house, 6.37 at night, and now with the time change, 7 feels like 10.30 at night. Uh, and it, it's, you've had supper, the kids are all taken care of, and you're kind of settling in for just a little bit of relaxation before the day's over. And, uh, and without a call, without any preparation, without any forewarning, there's a knock at your door. And you realize somebody's there that you aren't expecting. You're thinking maybe Mormon, maybe Jehovah's Witness. You might think it's Amazon guy because the Amazon guy sometimes at this time of year is, is, is late. But you don't know. And you open the door and it's Gary James. And you recognize him immediately because everybody recognizes Gary James. Everybody knows him. He's been here a long time. And, um, and as he comes in, you start the, the regular chit-chat and you start having conversations. But in the back of your mind the whole time, you're... There's this one question that keeps going around and around. What is it? What are you here for, <laughs> right? No offense to Gary. Everybody likes Gary. It's, not, it's just he's an elder and you're thinking, what have I done? Or, or maybe you're thinking, what are you going to rope me into or something like that. But you're wondering, what are you doing here? And after all the chit-chat, you hope he gets around to it. But you're wondering the whole time. 
I've seen that look whenever I've done evening, evening visits with people. They're all looking at me like, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? Or, or maybe to put it in the opposite way, have you ever gone to do something and then you couldn't remember why you were doing this? You go into a room and you can't remember why you came in here? And you're like, there, I, was, I was coming here for a reason and I just can't come up with it. Or, or, or maybe for you, it's, uh, you're on your way home from work or, and your wife calls and says, could you pick up two, four, five, six things at Dollar General or whatever, and you stop and you get a bunch of stuff, but it's the one thing she wanted most you forget. Anybody done this before? The one thing that you really went for, you don't get, you get all this other stuff. When you forget why you're here, it is a bad thing. And it leads to all sorts of things, and it leads to frustration later on. I, I, wanna, I, I know what you're here for. You're here because Jesus came. That's the one reason that unites us all, because Jesus came here and lived his life the way he did. We come in response, and we give him the worship. But you've got to ask yourself, why did he come? Now, I know we did, and I, and I appreciate it, but why, why did he make this trip? There are several times Jesus or one of the New Testament writers stops and says, here's why Jesus came. And there's a couple categories of response, and I think we need to, to think about this as you're studying Scripture. You'll have one. I'm going to read a couple of these. And, and when you read them and he says, this is why Jesus came, sometimes Jesus came to do something only Jesus could do. And once he was done, it was done. This is why he's Savior. This is why he's Lord. And this is why we worship him, because he did stuff we couldn't do. But sometimes when it says Jesus came to do something, it is also why we're here. It is an obligation for us that the reason Jesus came is the reason we're still here, and it's the work we've got to do. And you've got to interpret it this way because this is our job description. So let me give you a couple of these. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And tell me which category this goes in. Jesus does it and only Jesus, or Jesus does it and so should we. 1 John chapter 3. You know that he came in order to take away sins, and in, in him there was no sin. Which category does this fit in? Only Jesus could do it. He came and he offered that sacrifice for sin that we never could do, no matter how many years we lived or how many lifetimes we lived. Only Jesus could do it. Once he did it, it was done. He is Savior and he's Lord, and we worship him. This is why we worship him. He did what we couldn't do. Now, you keep on going down a few verses in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where it says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the work of the devil. Which category does this fit in? I kind of think it's only Jesus. Only Jesus could take the devil on and win, and he did. He comes down here and he takes him on eye to eye and he wins, and he defeats him for us. And so we experience the victory because of him. So that's where it belongs. But then you go to John 18, and Jesus is standing before Herod and says, You know why I was born? Pilate, not Herod, you know why I was born? You know why I came? To bear witness to the truth. Is that something only Jesus came to do, or is that what he came to do and empower us to do the same? That one, that one's tough because he is the truth. We are not the truth, but we have it if we have him. That's a little bit harder. Now go to Mark chapter 1, verse 38. All these people early in the morning come after Jesus, want him to heal their sick, and they say, hey, Jesus, they're here to, for you to heal them. Come and heal them. And he says, no, let me go to nearby villages to preach there also. That's why I've come. I've come to preach. Is that Jesus only, or is that Jesus and us? That's Jesus and us. One last one. 
Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Is that Jesus or is that Jesus and us? It is Jesus and us. You've got to decide this because your job description comes from this. We often get, the, we get this impression that Jesus came to save us, and once we're saved, we bask in the joy of this wonderful salvation, and we just get to cruise through life enjoying this. But that's never God's intent. God's intent was to save you so he could put you to work in helping him save the rest of the world. And if we sit here and bask in the joy and glory of it, but we never get busy to help other people come to that same knowledge, we're forfeiting what Jesus has called us for. His description informs our own. And so we come to this story, Matthew chapter 9. Join me at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So he sees, G sees Matthew sitting, he's a tax collector, and he calls him out of tax collecting, and he calls him to be a disciple. This is an apostolic call, and Matthew answers it. And Matthew does something more drastic than the, than the fisherman did. He leaves behind an occupation he can never go back to. He could never go back to the tax collector's booth. They would never hire him again, unlike the fisherman. And so Matthew agrees to it, and he gets up immediately and follows Jesus. And his first response, it says, as Jesus reclined at the table, we learn from the other Gospels, this is at Matthew's house. As he reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and said to his disciples, or with his disciples, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This question plagues Jesus all the way through the three years of ministry he has. This is the number one complaint, the number one criticism, the number one write-up he gets. Why is he always hanging around the wrong people? And he answers it over and over and over again. The most famous answer is the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is his answer to this question. But here he's going to take another stab at it in a different direction. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to reach people who need salvation, not those who already have it. Is this, a, this is a job description. This is why Jesus came. question is, is this also why we're here? Does this fit and what, which categories does this fit in? It, it seems to me it fits in this latter one. It is the work of Jesus. It's what he came for, but it's also what he assigned us to do too. We're to go and to reach those, who, those people who are sick and who are sinners, call them to repentance so that they can, they can receive the same joy and same salvation that we get to have. We often stop short though, right? There's a couple of things we need to see in this story that are worthwhile. I want you to see that they, uh, as soon as he's called to be an apostle, he invites people over his house and they're reclining. Look at this picture. This is kind of an image of a first century house party, which was common. You look at how often Jesus is eating in somebody's house. The stories in the Gospels, Jesus, he's always eating at somebody's house. So our response to always have potlucks and meals with everything we do is a biblical, godly response. It, we get this, and we got a good heritage and tradition of this. But I like chairs better. I'm one of these. I'm glad I live when I live because I'd rather sit in a chair than do this. 
they're reclining. This is going to explain a few things. It's going to explain how you can have so many in a small area. You jam-pack each other and you recline next to each other when you eat. That's the way they did it in the first century. We would not like this, but they were used to this. This is how you do it, and you could pack a lot of people in a small territory. This is ancient recliners right here. This is what that is. Now, this also explains why foot washing was so very important. If you are reclining and you happen to move your feet back and you're kind of like, you know, getting comfortable, your feet will be within two feet of the face of the person reclining next to you. Which whatever smells are on your feet will waffle up to me while I'm eating that salmon or that fish or whatever they're eating. You see, if, peop if we had one of those foot washing services right now at Valley View, it would be ceremonial. We don't need it. Okay, 98% of us don't need it. You don't need it. It's not a significant thing to you. But in the first century, when you're walking on those roads and you're kind of barefoot or sandals, you would stink something awful. And to have somebody wash your feet is very important. So that kind of explains that. It, 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 will explain, it, it will explain why when you invited people over, people assumed you were pretty good friends. If I invite one of you over and I find you strange... Like, say, Ed, say, I think Ed's strange. He looks like Moses, and I, I'm a little uncomfortable with him. I can, I can strategize where I'm going to seat him at the table. In fact, that's the number one question we're at, when we're setting the table, where we're going to set everybody. And I would say, well, Ed's a little weird. Set him across from me, about three feet. Set him in this chair where he's limited in his mobility, right? And I can control where Ed goes. But you invite him over to your house and you're all reclining, you're going you're gonna to be close to Ed no matter where you put him. And his feet are going to be close to you, his face is going to be close to you, and you just, you got to be close. And so in the first century, when you had a meal like this, everybody assumed you're kind of, you're kind of intimate friends with the people that you have at your house. So here's Jesus eating at this house of Matthew when he's got all these other tax collectors and sinful people. They're all eating together, all reclining. They're just assuming Jesus is kind of endorsing these people. And the Pharisees have become a little stereotypical. How many of you operate in stereotypes? You kind of, and by the way, if you're not holding your hand up, you are wrong. Every one of you does this. And it's one of the warnings of, I think, this passage is you're thinking that every tax collector is the same way. We think every tax collector in the first century is a traitor to the Jewish nation. You think they're all a bunch of greedy people that overcharge people because that's what the Pharisees thought. They labeled everybody. That's a tax collector. I know every tax collector. If you know one, you know them all. And that's not true. I want you to listen to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He said, I'm not going to baptize you people because you're not really repentant. And all these people said, well, then what do I need to do? And a tax collector walks up. A bunch of tax collectors were, were following John the Baptist. And they come up and say, what do we need to do? And John the Baptist looks at him and says, you need to leave your occupation or you're going to hell. He would love to say that. That's not what he says. He says, collect no more than what you're authorized to do. It's not a sin for a Jew to be a tax collector. There's nothing wrong with that if you do it right. And I think a lot of times we have these stereotypes of people that we just, we just categorize them all the same. That caravan of people coming across Latin America trying to get in the United States, we label them all as a bunch of outlaw, renegade, awful people that if they got in here, they'd murder everybody. 
That's not true. We just, it's easier to lump everybody together and label them. It's a lot better to do that, a lot easier and a lot less time-consuming than to look at each one of them and say, what kind of person are you? You see, when Jesus tells us to judge each other, and he does tell us this, he says, I want you to take each tree, and I want you to look at the fruit of each tree and decide what kind of tree it is. I'm not asking you to look at the whole orchard and take one tree and judge them all by the fruit of that tree. We're all guilty of this. Not all white people are anything, y'all. Not all white people are prejudiced. Not all white people are scum of the earth. Not all of them are ro- rob- robbing and raping people. No, that's not. Some do, but not all of them. And by the way, not all African Americans do either. And not all Hispanic, not even all illegal immigrants do. We're not all anything. You've got to take the time to get to know people and quit stereotyping people. By the way, I do this too. We all do this. I do this with the Pharisees. Those Pharisees were all scumbags. No, they weren't. There's some good ones. You can name some. Can you name some good Pharisees? Nicodemus was a good one. He was a faithful. He was the one trying to really, you know, Joseph of Arimathea maybe. We've got to be real careful and say, you know, the, way, the reason Trump was voted on because all these white working class people or white collar voted for him. No, they didn't. Not everybody does anything. And we've got to take the time to get to know people and quit judging people. And, and these guys come along, these Pharisees, and they're looking in there and they're saying, everybody in there is a no-count sinner who doesn't love God, who hates God, and you're eating with them. No, that's not true. That's not how they were. Not all those people were the same. And we can't do that either. We can't walk along in Jonesboro and say, well, that's a group of people who will never hear the gospel, who will never be interested. They're all a bunch of sickos. Leave them alone and let them rot in hell. You can't do that. That's their stereotype, and Christians are not to be stereotyping people. We are not to be a bunch of people who think we judge everybody based on this one attribute that we've seen in one person who's kind of like that person over there. We've got to quit stereotyping people. And certainly if we're going to be people who are like Jesus, we need to take each person at face value, and we need to treat them accordingly and not be stereotypes. But it goes on worse than this. I don't think Matthew's a bad guy at all. Matthew was not called to salvation in this text. He was already a faithful Jew. He was called to apostleship. And then he gathers all the people he knows in his, in his vicinity, people he's worked with and people who are willing to, extend, he, to respond to his invitation and invites them over to his house and he invites Jesus in on it. And there Jesus comes. And this is when the guilt by association thing comes. The Pharisees see it and they say, you must be endorsing these sinful people. Jesus then gives his M.O. He gives his explanation in three things. First is a proverb. I want you to see the proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Statement number one, it's a proverb. This makes sense, doesn't it? Doctors are here to help sick people, not the well, right? So who are the well? This is questions I'm asking you, I'm not answering. Who are the well people? You've got to answer that question. Number two, who's the physician? I think we would all say Jesus is. Number three, who are the sick? And then in this proverb, if Jesus is the physician, sinners are sick people, the Pharisees are the ones who think they're well and don't think they need Jesus, the question becomes, if this is our proverb, who are we? 
Who are the we in this church this morning who gather here to worship God? Who are we? What, how is this mission ours? And I think the answer is we are the EMTs. We're the ambulance drivers. We're the people who bring others to the physician. We can't save and we can't heal, but we know who can, and we want to introduce the sick to the physician. So we're EMTs individually. And as a church, then we are the hospital. So quit expecting people to get their act together before they come to church. We have so many people that we say, well, they're, they're bad people. They wouldn't want to come. Hold just a minute. We are a hospital. We're a place where people can come and find the physician and find healing. It's not like get your act together, get all well, then come to church. That makes no sense at all. We've got to honor this. Second way he answers it is in Scripture. He takes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and he says to these Pharisees, you guys don't understand the Scripture at all. And so he tries to help them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The red right there, this is called synonymous parallelism. The red are the same and the blue are the same. God says, you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for people to do the five acts of worship on Sunday. But I also want them to let that lead them into relationship with me and grab my heart. I don't want people who just do the five acts but never get to know me and never have a relationship with me. I want the relationship and the ritual. I don't want one or the other. And what he wants is us to be a people who take that use, by, by, by engaging in those five acts of worship, we start acting like God and thinking like God and being like God, and we share God with other people, and the relationship is as important as the ritual is. They've missed that. The third thing is his mission statement. Here it is. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He wants to call them to repentance. Who are the righteous? Who are the sinners? Who are you? What, who is the church? Is this for us or is this Jesus only? I have to believe this is for us. Here's what ends up happening, though. We become like a people who so enjoy our fellowship and our times together and our celebration of the, of the salvation we have that we forget the rest of the story, that we go out and share it with other people like the fire department people who like to really wash and wax those fire trucks because after all it is kind of a parade season and because all these preschools love to bring this nice crispy clean you know fire truck to the preschool and dazzle the kids the problem and they like the five alarm chili right everybody likes the hot chili they got together and the camaraderie of everybody at the fire department Jason Wills right and then here comes an alarm. Somebody has a fire, but everybody thinks, well, we'd mess up the truck. We'd have to clean it up again, and this chili looks really good, and it'll be cold by the time we get back. And, and let's just forget answering the call. Let's just stay here and enjoy our fellowship at the fire station. And sometimes we as a church are guilty of this because we enjoy each other so much. And I hear even people say, you look at Acts 2 where after they, after they were converted, they, they stayed in the temple area and they were together every day and they were loving each other's fellowship. And everybody's like, we need to be more like that. And I say to you, no, we shouldn't. God doesn't call us to commune. 
to make a utopia. He calls us to go out. He calls us to go out and share this with other people. And this sermon doesn't fall on real good ears because people don't like this message, and I don't either. Because this is the hard work of how in the world do I share this with other people? But this is a mission, and if Jesus says, this is why I came, and everything I do is because of why I came, and he says to us, this, by the way, is why you're here, if we do a lot of this stuff but not the stuff we came for, we're getting distracted. We're forgetting why we came to the store. We're forgetting why we came in this room. We're coming in here saying we got saved, we were right with God, and he's wanting to use us to reach the world. Yeah, yeah, and we come in here, and we forget why we came. We just simply bask in the glory of our wonderful relationship with him. I think, look at this last slide. Jesus did what he did, which is eat with sinners because of why he came. He was trying to reach them. The Pharisees, I guess, they don't, they don't disagree with this. Those sinners need the Lord, but they thought they should come to church. They should come to the synagogue and hear it in a septic environment of the synagogue. Jesus says, no, I think we need to go to them. And can I tell you, the age of gospel meetings, you know, somewhat we, we find it weakened because here's the deal. If the world is not coming to hear it, how is it an evangelistic meeting? So if the world is not coming up here, up the hill, to hear the message, what must we do if our number one goal is to get them to hear it? We must go out where they are. That's where they have to be in order to get a chance to hear it. And so what we do then, and you fill in the blank, and I'll fill it in in a little bit here in a minute, because of why we are here, which is also why he came, our mission is the same exact thing. So what are we doing about this? What are we doing that reflects we're aware of the mission that God's given us? I'll give you one. Next slide. Have you filled your sack yet? And by the way, I appreciate if you did. But it's not really the mission until you deliver it and put it in the hands of somebody who doesn't attend here. Then... We have filled a mission for this church because the moment you fill that sack, and like the video shows, this is God's love, once you fill that and you take it into the home of or put it in the arms of somebody and you look them in the eye and you actually have skin in the game, suddenly we are being the church on the hill for real. We're not throwing money at stuff. We're not talking about it. We're actually doing it. We're doing what we were called to do. And those of you who've done this before know the power, the power that comes to you when you are actually doing what you were called to do. You're not forgetting. You're not getting distracted. You actually come into this room and you do what you came here to do. All of a sudden, something happens within you that says, this really is what I'm called to do. And God, through His Spirit confirms in yours this really is what I'm here for there's nothing like that transaction that takes place we'll talk more about that Wednesday night here's another one this is going to look unfamiliar to you if you're a gospel advocate reader you might recognize this Matthew Mooring's a we had classes together at Harding but he was younger he's a Canadian eh he's a Canadian he talks really weird which makes him fun to listen to 
And he's written this book just recently out, I don't even have a copy of it yet, called Natural Evangelism. How to do evangelism, not with an open Bible study in your home, but as you're going through the course of your life. In January, he is coming over from Colorado right here on the last Saturday of January. He's going to be with us. We have a meal in between. He's going to do two sessions then, two sessions uh, Sunday, just in our regular worship. And he's going to talk about how we can be the kind of people who take evangelism with them. It becomes part of who you are. And you know what? I'm not strong at this because I, I work in a church building with people who are already Christians. And so I don't have the opportunities you have. I don't have the burden that you have. Or maybe I do. I just got to find a way to fulfill it some other way. But here's one of the things. We, we were at Fuji's a few months ago, Abby's birthday, and we were, we were seated before the guy comes out and does all that weird stuff that he does. We were seated there, and these three college students were seated over here. We were patched together, right? And we start inter, interacting with this guy. One guy's from Bloomfield, Missouri. The other one's from Benton, Arkansas. Another one's from Conway, Arkansas, or Pangburn. I'm not sure where that is. Anyway, so all three of them were sitting across here, and we start having a conversation with them. We kind of exchange cell phone numbers, which is weird, but we do that. And we invite them to church, which they, as far as I know, didn't, haven't come yet. But we invited them to the Tuesday college meal at our house, and they came the next college, the next day, next Tuesday. They came for spaghetti. Food kind of, food appeals to college people, doesn't it? You guys like to eat? Who doesn't? But anyway, so they came. That was the only time. I don't know what good that is. And I see them at ASU football games, go down there, harass them a little bit. But I'm starting to, to realize that just the old-fashioned thing of inviting them to stuff, inviting them to church, inviting them to your home for whatever, and that leads me to the third one. This is called a Matthew party. I, I saw this in a book somewhere, and I thought, what a neat idea. And a Matthew party is once you've decided that you're, you belong to the Lord, invite the friends that you know, the people you work with. Now, I'm not talking about some stranger at Walmart. I don't know that kind of evangel. I don't know how to do that. But I'm talking about the people that you work with and the people that you know. You invite them to your house and bring Jesus with you. That's what Matthew did. As soon as he was called, he has everybody at his house and said, Jesus, come on in. I want to introduce you to everybody. And that's what you do. And you can do that at your house a lot better than you can do it somewhere else or just random. Next year, we're really going to be encouraging some Matthew parties at Valley View. Small things. Bring them to your house and just talk to them. We've got to be doing something because we as a church have got to obey and grapple with this verse. I hate preaching on it. I hate even having Bible classes on it. But here's the thing, guys. When you do expository preaching and you hit this text, you've got to preach it and you've got to grapple with it. You've got to be faithful even to the parts of Scripture you don't particularly like. You've got to grapple with what it means. And what it means is we've got to take seriously that God didn't just save us for us to go yeehaw and enjoy God forever. He saved us to put us to work to save others. And we've got to figure out a way to do this. Okay, so right now in my pocket, I just want to announce this. Charles and Melinda Wiggs. Would you raise your hand right where you are? Great, wonderful. But they've been here for a long time, but just now they're placing membership with us. Is that a good thing? That's a great thing. Glad they're here. And, I, and they've been wonderful. And guess what? They always go uh, uh, down to Florida all, uh, you know, at this time of year to, to avoid. But they like Valley View so much, they're skipping Florida. Is that not good? That says something, isn't it, right? I don't know if that's the whole story. I figure it's because their car broke down. But anyway, so it, it's, it's, th- that's great they're here. But can I tell you something? I'm, I'm ready. 
I'm ready for us to more talk about baptized people who've never known Jesus before because of the work we're doing here. Not just people who are, who are placing membership because they've moved in from somewhere. Got to be a church that wants to reach a lost world. And I, I don't know how to light that fire, but I do know that Matthew says, and Matthew, you invite these people to your home and you've got an obligation that we are here to reach the sick and not just to go for the healthy all the time and be around the healthy all the time. So what we come up here is we come up here and we worship him here today on Sunday morning, thanking God for all the things he came for that we could never have accomplished on our own. We give him praise and worship for dying for us and for defeating Satan for us and showing us the truth of God that we couldn't have known otherwise. But we also adopt an understanding that when we come up here and worship like this, we then go down the hill and join our regular life in doing what he also came to show us what to do. Once you've enjoyed the blessing of what he came to do and only he came to do, you share that with other people. You are put to work to reach others. And so when you come up here, let's worship and praise him and give him the worship he deserves. But let's leave, re-engage our lives, and share this with people who are sick and sinners who need to repent and find that same wonderful salvation we get to enjoy. The job's not done up here on the hill. The job continues at the bottom of it with the work that we've been called to do. I challenge you to be a person who opens your mind up and thinks about how you can come and influence those who are sick and those who need the great physician there's anyone here who for whatever reason you've delayed you've not put him on in baptism you've not repented of your sins you've not become a child of God none of this makes any sense at all let me tell you why he came he came to offer the sacrifice for your sin that you could never offer he came to pay the debt you could never pay and it's paid right here there's no reason to leave here in debt there's no reason but when you discover it, and if you were to come this morning and have that debt paid forever, you've got work to do. You've got people to share this with. And that's our job for the rest of this week. You've done your worship. Now do your service when you leave. And if there's anyone who needs to respond, do so now as we stand and as we sing.